All right, looks like we're at time, so we'll go ahead and get started today. We're going to be starting into Habakkuk. You can pronounce it however you want. I just looked at the Hebrew, and it's actually even crazier than how we pronounce it. It's like a Habakkuk. So pronounce it however you will, and I'm sure I'll change pronunciation each and every time I say it. So we'll be starting into that book today. It's just a marvelous book. We'll look more into it in. As we get into the introductory material, let's go ahead and start with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so a little bit of the introductory material before we get kind of into the major themes of the, this book here. And so we're going to look at the introductory material on page 1504, see what the the editors have put here, and then what Luther has to say. Look at that second paragraph under reading Habakkuk. The prophet Habakkuk waited like a patient scribe or messenger for a vision the Lord promised him. As he waited, he needed the Lord's encouragement and patience. Habakkuk's style is unique among the prophets in that he never addresses God's people directly, yet his message would aptly would aptly very, apply very directly. Oh my goodness. Then and now. His homeland, the kingdom of Judah, had suffered grave threats from the Assyrian Empire. When the Lord's message came to Habakkuk, it called the Judeans to sober humility and sincere faith. Though the Lord would destroy the Assyrians, he would raise up the Babylonians to chasten wayward Judah. All right, so that's a little bit of the introductory. So, they're in that time period where the Babylonians are going to be coming. They have suffered gravely under the Assyrians already. The dating for it is somewhere around 605 BC. If you remember the destruction of the temples in like 587, 586. So it's leading up to that whole, that whole episode in Israel's history. But Habakkuk, it's kind of an odd book, but it's also very very edifying for us to read through and see how he questions the Lord and how he patiently waits for the Lord's response. And so we'll see a great pattern of how we are to live our lives, even in the midst of suffering, how we can question the Lord and say, how long, O Lord, but then wait and know that the Lord does answer us in time. So there's going to be some back and forth as we go through this book You'll have Habakkuk complaining, then the Lord answering, then him complaining again, and then the Lord answering. And then we'll get a prayer or a psalm or a song of Habakkuk at the end. But we haven't done this before, but I thought it would be kind of edifying for us to just sit here and listen. And I'll read through. It's only three chapters. It's fairly brief. But to just see this back and forth between Habakkuk and the Lord and to see how he questions the Lord how the Lord responds in that back and forth between those two. So we'll just read through it all. That way we can kind of see the overarching message of this prophet. And then we'll start getting into the minor details of it. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth 
to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall we not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all in it. 
but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to Shigenoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon, and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my, on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. All right, so now it's a little bit of a long haul. But just getting the flow, the flavor of this minor prophet. I know it kind of con- contradicts my sermon last night of maybe slowing down and maybe just reading a few verses, but every once in a while it is nice to look at a book as a whole and not just read it verse by verse, but rather see it as a whole collection and seeing what the prophet is doing, what the Lord is saying in response, and that back and forth. Any questions or just reactions before we get into the material? A couple things. One, it reminds me of the Psalms. Mm-hmm. Going low and up, down and up, constantly. I, I like how he does like the others, constantly talking. Um, he's encouraging himself almost too, or God is encouraging himself mm-hmm. with the good points. Saying, like, hey, remember this. Yeah, it's a low time, but, you know, Friday is crucifixion, but Sunday is the resurrection. So you see that over and over in Habakkuk. And, and so that's one thing I, I noticed with this. He's constantly talking, not only God's talking to him, but he's also talking to God. He's saying, yeah, I know who you are. It's, it reminds me kind of a little bit like Jonah. He's, uh, you know, he, he knows God because Jonah did the same thing when he's Nineveh. And he looks at God and says, I knew you were gracious. And he's upset, but he knows God. And that's mm-hmm. the main character. So that's, that's one thing I get out of That's a great joy of this book, is seeing the life of a Christian in the life of Habakkuk here. And the ebbs and flows, we see that all throughout the Psalms. You know, with Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me. But then it ends, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. 
Same with Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even just within that, you have the profession of my God, my God, while still asking the question, why have you forsaken me? And so we have that both and in the life of a Christian and that they can ask those questions. But as we get into Habakkuk here, we'll see it's all questions in faith, knowing who God is and waiting for that answer. Is uh, the reference to the Chaldeans, I assume that's Babylonians as well. Yeah. Yeah, so kind of like with Nahum, how we had um, with Nineveh versus the Assyrians, the same type of back and forth, yeah. All right, anything else before we get, get in? All right, so getting back into one ver- chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> so again, another one is an oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So it was a vision from the Lord. But then when he started getting into his first complaint right off the bat, he doesn't waste any time. So he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Just how often have we asked that same type of question? Maybe not to that extent, or, but how long will this, will this happen? How long will you let the wicked get away with this? And so... There is some different, there are different interpretations of these first four verses of his complaint of if it's speaking about the Assyrians who are currently ruling, and then God's answer is, don't worry, I'll send the Babylonians, which is, yeah, then he goes out later of, well, yeah, but they're kind of a wicked people too. And then the Lord responds, that's okay, you know, I'll take care of them too. And so there's some thought if it's that, if he's speaking about the Assyrians. But some other commentators make the argument that he's actually speaking about the rulers of Judea here, the rulers in Israel. And that's why he's more embittered and asking these questions of how long is, yeah, we'd expect wicked rulers, the wicked Assyrians to kind of rule wickedly, but your own people here, your own kings here are ruling wickedly. And so how long are you going to let them get away with it? And so, you know, as you expect wicked to rule wicked, you expect good to rule in faithfulness. And that hurts all the more whenever they're not ruling in that way. And so there's some argument that they may, I think Luther may have taken it as that way, the rulers of Israel are not the outsiders of the Assyrians ruling. And so him asking those questions of how long. And so we'll see all these questions being in faith. We'll look at that a lot more whenever we get to verse 12. And so he asks these questions and he says, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? So he's accusing the Lord of sitting there and being idle seeing this evil, this wrongdoing, and sitting there and doing nothing. So he's bringing that accusation to him, which is, again, rather bold of him. He says, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. He continues on and says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. So the law, that which upholds justice, is paralyzed. Your good and gracious law that you gave us, yeah, it's paralyzed right now. It's not being carried out. So what are you going to do about it? How long, O Lord, will this continue on? For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Again, rather bold, bold questions, bold statements by him. We'll see more precisely in verse 12 the acknowledgement of his faith in the Lord. Right right off the bat, though, he's calling the Lord to task of how long? How long will this continue on? And then the Lord answers. So he speaks, and he waits for the Lord to answer, and the Lord does answer. And so today, as we, in our lives, as we question the Lord and say, how long will this go on? How long will this wickedness prevail? We can wait and expect an answer. 
maybe not verbally in the case of Habakkuk in a vision directly from the Lord, but what do we have instead? God's word. In many various ways, God spoke to the people of old by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we have his word. We have the answers to those questions of God, of how long will this happen? And the Lord answers here for us, especially as we've gotten through Advent and through the end of the church here and then into Advent, the prosperity of the wicked, all of those themes, and the focus on the end times and the last coming. We see that the wickedness, the wicked won't prevail forever. So we see that all throughout Scripture, and the Lord answers him here with that. Are there any thoughts before we get into the Lord's response to Habakkuk here? Well, it seems a couple of things. I understand his complaint because he's looking at, especially because our time here is limited. So let's say you live 100 years. You're looking, you know, at 50, 60 years down the road, and you're thinking, hey, this schmuck is that old, and he's still doing evil. So I can understand where he is complaining, where God's looking at the long term and the long picture, and he knows what's going on. But he also realizes, hey, we're time-sensitive creatures Mm -hmm. here, and he has eternity in mind. So that's... So I'm... I kind of go with him in his complaint, but I also know I love his, how God answers him in a gentle way. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's coming. Just relax. Or maybe even a little bit of a sarcastic way, too. We'll see in verse 5. But yeah, even though we are these temporal creatures, we still have all eternity to look forward to. So, yeah, we may have a little suffering, or as Pastor says, it's worst day is... But the worst life is like a bad night in a hotel, in the scheme of things. So it's like, yeah, you can have a really bad life, but in faith with the Lord, you have eternity to, to be at peace. So, Any other thoughts, questions? That's my that's my impression, that's what I've kind of gotten, is that it is a vision and kind of this back and forth between him. Again, with maybe with chapter three, if that's kind of a response to it. Again, kind of hard to tell. It seems to be Chapter 3 seems to kind of be on its own. You get all these different little side notes of this is a prayer, according to that Shigianoth, however you pronounce that. And you get in their study notes, there's a meaning of this musical term is uncertain. Some commentators suggest it refers to rapid changes of rhythm. Others think it is a kind of lament. Same with the Salah notes on the side. Some Theologians make some statements or explanations of that, but then you can find as many different explanations as you want. So that one seems kind of on its own, but still all within the same frame here. Not a great answer to your question. Backing up a little bit into verse 3, one more thing to hit on of, why do you make me see iniquity? He's asking the Lord, why, why do you make me see this? Why does the Lord have us see iniquity in our own lives? Why does he have us see the wickedness around us? Is that the Lord sitting idly by and just letting lawlessness carry forth? Because, well, because the... Um, should I wait? At this point, he's already halfway here, so yeah. <laughs> because the Lord says, the righteous shall live by faith. Mm. Yeah. And so they can hopefully see through that and cling to the faith that he has given mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, how much would we cling to God if we didn't see that iniquity, if everything was just, you know, rainbows and butterflies and everything was right? Wouldn't we cry out to God? Wouldn't we want, he want us to cry out to him and say, hey, we long for that day. We desire justice to be carried out. He has given us that law that we may desire it in the midst of all this wickedness. So it does serve that purpose. It's not you understand the great white throne judgment because some people keep coming back and say he won't punish the wicked and they don't know what really wickedness is they don't know the real intent of their evil hearts mm-hmm. yeah alright so we'll go ahead and get into the Lord's answer you may want you could take it as a little bit snarky I like to think of the Lord with a little bit of an attitude sometimes giving it right back but the Lord does answer in verse 5 and following. He says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished. For I, am a, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He said, I could tell you. I could tell you what I'm doing, why this iniquity is going on. You wouldn't even believe me if I told you, though. You, you wouldn't see it. You wouldn't believe what I was actually doing behind the scenes and the good that it was serving I mean, what do you think, what good is going to come out of the, Cal- or the Babylonians coming in? If I told you I was going to send them to, you know, save you in one way and wipe out the Assyrians and wipe out the wicked kings, you wouldn't believe me. So, why would I tell you? You wouldn't. You wouldn't believe me if, even if I did tell you. So again, he kind of calls us to task, or calls Habakkuk and us to task here. And he says, yeah. Put him in his place and says, hey, I'm God, you're not. I know what's going on. If I did tell you, you wouldn't believe me. So, trust me, I know what I'm doing here. He continues on. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. So the Lord even knows that they're bitter, bitter and hasty. Who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, and a little bit more sarcasm. Their justice and dignity go, go forth from themselves. So their version of justice and dignity, or maybe the lack thereof, is shining. They, everyone can see their lack of justice, their perverted justice. But he still says, I'm raising them up. I'm raising up this nation for your sake. The Lord raising up even a wicked nation. So again, he's saying, you wouldn't believe it if I told you, but this is what I'm doing. It says, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. We saw that in Nahum with the glittering swords and the speeding chariots fast as lightning type of stuff. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So godless nation who trusts in their own might and power. He says, I'm raising them up. But again, what will be their end? What do we see with Amos and all the trust in the military power? Did it serve them any good? Or even in Nahum, the Lord kind of taunts the, uh, the Assyrians and says, you know, here, get ready for battle. You know, get your chariots all ready. And you want to fight, fight against me? Let's see, how it, let's see how it goes. So he's saying, you know, their might is their God. So they're a godless nation put their trust in their own might. And then Habakkuk responds again. And here we get his great confession of faith in the Lord. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So first he 
calls out to God who is, or he calls God as one who is everlasting. He is Yahweh, my God, my Holy One. And then he says, we shall not die. So even in the midst of raising up the Babylonians who, you know, Habakkuk clearly knows who they are in their fierceness. So he says, even with that, we won't die. There will be a faithful remnant that you will preserve. But then, after that, then he calls out, again, and calls God to task, and he says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? But this pattern of acknowledging who God is and what he has done and then speaking to him directly is going to be a pattern that we see all in our, not in all of our collects, but I'm going to pass a couple of these around. I just pulled a couple of our collects from different services that we use throughout the church here. And not all of them follow the same pattern, but many of them do, similar to that of Habakkuk, similar to that of the Psalms that we have. So we're going to look just briefly at a few of these. I can't remember which Sundays of the church here they fell from. Just got to keep going through them until you finally find the ones. But the first one, so, O God, you declare your mighty power above all in showing mercy and pity. So we call out of God and we declare what he has done so that he is almighty. He is powerful above all. He shows mercy and pity. And then we ask God for that petition. Mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace. And then what would be the result of such a petition? That we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures. And then the common termination from that. But the second one, Lord of all power and might, author and giver of all good things. So Lord is all power and might. He is the author and giver of all good things. And then the petition, grant into our hearts the love of your name. Increase in us true religion. Nourish us with all goodness and of your great mercy. Keep us in the same. And then the termination. And you have the third one there as well. But this same pattern that we have of calling out to God, calling out in faith of what he has done for us, that he is almighty, he is powerful, he has given us all good things, and then the petition. So we acknowledge who God is, what he has done, and then ask of him, knowing that he is all-powerful, giver of all good things, etc. So we follow that same pattern in our prayers Likewise, Habakkuk follows that same pattern here of calling out to God, acknowledging who he is and what he has done. And then he, not so much a petition, but kind of a petition maybe, asking God to change things, essentially, saying, you are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. So he's saying that the Lord is of pure eyes. And with those pure eyes, how can he look at evil? That he can see evil and cannot look at wrong. And again, accusing him of idly looking there and just remaining silent. When the wicked are doing all these things. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea like crawling things that have no ruler. Kind of like fish in a barrel. We're just helpless here. He brings, that is, the Babylonians, maybe it's the Babylonian king, or just he is kind of a collective. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. So again, we saw the imagery of the hook was it back in Amos, of leading them away with the fish hooks in their mouth type of thing? That was for the people of Israel, though. Here he's, again, speaking of the people of Israel, but at the hand of the Babylonians here. 
just a sweeping dragnet of just picking up everyone. They're taking everyone with them with the hook, and they're rejoicing in that. Therefore, he, as again, the Babylonians, sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. So before their might was their God, and now they're making sacrifices to their, their nets or their dragnets, which again would be their military might, their means of sweeping everyone up in their, in their might and dragging them away. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. He says, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So again, asking how long is this going to be going on? Will he keep on doing this forever? Then we get a division in the chapter. I really don't like the division here. I think it would be better just at least move it one verse later into verse 2. Because he has just called God to the task here and says, you know, how long will this keep going on? But then he stands ready to receive that answer from God. And he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Right, so here he positions himself in a way in which he can receive that response from the Lord. So he's not just saying, hey, Lord, how long is this going to go on? And then, all right, I'm going to keep going on my merry way. He asks the question, and he is ready for that response. So he stands in faith, knowing that he will respond. So he's not going to try to rationalize it himself of, okay, how long is this going to go on? Well, maybe this is the reason or that's the reason. No, he stands there and he waits, knowing that the Lord will answer. And the Lord does, in fact, answer. So he's not trying to rationalize to himself or even rationalize God and saying, well, maybe God is allowing this to keep on because of this or that, kind of making excuses for God. No, he's asking God and waiting for that response. So again, in our lives, we ask God, we wait for that response. Not some new direct revelation from God, for he's revealed himself to us in these scriptures. And so we know that he will respond. And so we stand in that position where we ask God and we actually want a response back. We don't ask God and then just do it in a way of just kind of venting to him. No, we ask and we want him to respond to us, and he does through his word. Any thoughts, contemplations on that? I figure I'd have a couple hands. So uh, verse uh, 16, where it says, uh, therefore he sacrifices mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. offerings to his dragnet. That's curious uh, imagery to I mean, mm-hmm. He's describing God. No, this would be the Babylonian. So the, yeah, so the he in verse 15 and following. Oh, yeah. So he's calling out to God, O oh Lord, my God, you have ordained all these things. And he's saying, he brings all of them up with a hook. Oh. So an outside he. Yeah. Okay. So again, with that dragnet, you know, indiscriminately gathering all these fish as the commercial fishermen would do. You know, you don't cast out a dragnet only looking for, only expecting to get, you know, tuna back or something. Pick up everything as you go, and you don't care because you got what you wanted in the end, and everything else is just collateral from there. All right, anything else? Other than it reminds me a little bit of Esau and the Edom. God blessed them, even though he was a thing. But then when uh, the Assyrians came and took the Jews away, Esau was judged because the, the Edomites didn't, they, they laughed and took help in taking the plunder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see God's judgment when you don't obey what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Even then, just the counterintuitive nature of God's response. 
and calls out, you know, how long. And he says, don't worry, I'll raise up the Babylonians. It's like, well, great, Lord, thanks. You know, they're not the greatest nation. And so God's response is always, not always, but he's a lot more counterintuitive than intuitive in how he responds. Yeah, yeah that's is Isaiah 55. It says, your ways are not my way. Mm, yeah. It's not, yes. It's a good thing that it's not our ways. Would we want him to act in our ways? How we think is best? How, how often have we thought something was best and going to be foolishly wrong at the end? Again, just the counterintuitive nature of God's response and his knowing and his saying that he is God, we're not. And that, that's a good thing. It may not look like it to us, but when God does respond, we can trust and know that it is for the best, whether or not we like it or not. And God is acting for our good in many ways. All right, anything else before we move on? Here we'll get the Lord's response again. Two verse two, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. So making it plain on tablets, so it's not like writing it on paper or something where it can eventually just kind of fade away and dissolve into nothingness, but writing it on tablets, tablets of stone here. So yes, be thinking the Ten Commandments in your mind, the same type of thing, the permanency of it. Make it plain so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. Ah, so there is an appointed time for things. He's not just idly sitting there and remaining silent for all eternity. He knows what's going on. He has a plan. It's just not its appointed time yet. And so wait. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. That's a good, good meditation for us. It will surely come. It will not delay. So as we wait for the last day and we say, you know, Lord, it seems kind of slow. You know, you said you were coming again. It's a couple thousand years ago. You know, you think you could hurry things along. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And then we get the very famous verse. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So we get that quoted number of times in the New Testament. Get it in Hebrews 11, especially of the whole by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And what do we have at the end of all those examples? So by faith, Abraham did this, by faith. What do we get at the very end of those examples? Did they all live to see the... Yeah. Mm-hmm. They all died having not received that. So they had waited for that. They lived out their lives by faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, it's just hilarious, not hilarious, sad even. People that believe that, you know, well, the belief in the Old Testament was one thing. The belief in the New Testament was the other. Saved by works, saved by faith. And pin one against the other. What's it saying here? The righteous live by his works? No. Righteous live by his faith. Was Abraham counted as righteous by his works? It was by faith. It's one faith. It was a faith in the promise of the Messiah to come and then the, the faith in the Messiah who has come. One faith, one baptism. You may go down a huge rabbit hole of all the different examples and look at those, but it's just marvelous how it's hidden here in such a minor prophet that you, know, you wouldn't expect. Expect it, and again, often we overlook Habakkuk. I mean, I've read through it, but not really 
too deeply before. And so who would have thought that such a profound statement would be hidden away in just one of these minor prophets here? So again, minor not because of their insignificance, but just because of their brevity of their of their visions that they recorded here. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So the wine is a traitor. We get that in Dead Sea Scrolls. Oh, wealth. Masoretic text, the Dead Sea Scroll is wealth for that. Maybe not wine, but either way, I think we would be fairly safe to say either one of those can be a, be a traitor there, wine or wealth. The arrogant man is never at rest. He always wants more. He is greedy, keeps gathering more and more for himself, collects indiscriminately and after all, that's the desire of many in this life, of you work as much as you can or collect more and more for yourself. For what? We'll see in, later on in chapter 2, they labor merely for fire. It's all going to be burned up. It's on the last day, what good is it going to do you? So they're laboring all the way for, for what exactly? All right, I'll pause there before we get into the woes and kind of these taunting songs against the Chaldeans here. It's just, when you bring it up, you see the Old Testament in this over, because I'm looking back um, on one, when he says, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, O rock. Mm -hmm. That's almost going back to, you know, the going through Mm -hmm. Sinai. And then, then, it, then it, this other thing, verse 2, I mean verse 1 in chapter 2, it says, I will take my stand as a watch post. And it reminds me of a little bit of Ezekiel, remember? God tells him, you are the, you are the, the one that's supposed to be the watchman on the mm-hmm. post taken there. So you, you kind of see it. And then this other thing that he says up here, it says, you shall run who reads it. And it mm-hmm. goes back that right away takes me back when uh, uh, Elijah tells the prophet to go back and he tells Joaz to become king of Syria, you know, Mary, and he goes and he says, you take him aside and tell him and then run. And that's what he does. He takes him mm-hmm. to the room, he gives him the thing, anoints him with oil, and he opens the door and runs mm-hmm. out of hell. So... Are we supposed to read the whole tablet? Big sign is, you know, along the side of the road is basically what he's saying. You know, make it large so everyone can read it. And you read, oh, the righteous shall live by faith. And, oh, okay. I guess I'll live by faith and that's it. No, what do you, what's the response of that is to run who reads it, to share that with others, to run in great joy. And then just the continuity all throughout Scripture of the oh, rock, like you had pointed out, even being out in the wilderness, but then you get that with Paul in 1 Corinthians, the rock who is Christ, and all these things. So, Anything else before we move? Yeah, Barry. Yeah, this began, I think, with uh, Habakkuk... Uh, basically challenging God. He says, you're idle. I'm active. I'm watching things. And uh, now we see God coming back uh, with this context declaration, the righteous mm-hmm. shall live by faith. But I, it seems to me in the context of everything, we should add, and patiently, live patiently, trusting me. Mm-hmm. I, in my mind, that's what I want to add. And, uh, you know, but our human nature is to see the log in other people's eyes. Maybe he's, God is saying, okay, Habakkuk, look for the speck in your eye. 
also, you know, and slowed mm-hmm. down. And uh, uh, I don't know. A lot of things are coming together here for me that tie into the New Testament, too. So. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to think of that verse 2-4 now also to add, shall live by faith, patiently trusting in God. Mm-hmm. Not accusing him of being idle. Anyway, it's, it's just a thought. I mean, even then, as you do, I mean, again, don't know if I want to go there, but calling out to the Lord of, you know, how long and all these things, you know, as you still live out that life by faith. Again, you're, yeah, how long? And even then, you know, they're, they're up in heaven crying that out to us, so... Mm-hmm. But then, you know, God does delight in our questions to him. You know, as we do question him in that faith, knowing that he is merciful, he, is, he has that plan, he has that timeline down, we still can call out, but as long as we don't, you know, start accusing him of not doing anything, so. Or anything else before we move into the woes? Get a little more... Kids get angrily impatient with me all the time. <laughs> Start bringing out Habakkuk to them. <laughs> and I don't really mind it. Yeah. <laughs> Dad, come on. Yeah. Let's go. You said. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then they call you to task on it. You're like, oh, yeah, I did say. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's not. Yeah. Maybe if they start asking you how long, you know, what gives for, you know, day in, day out, then you might start getting a little. I don't think God always takes it personally when we're no. angry with him, you know. Yeah. <sighs> I have to remember that. <laughs> All right, anything else before we move on to the woes? All right, verse 6. Kind of get a little bit of a mockery here, this taunting. It's just great. You have it with all throughout the life of, or the history of the church, this mockery that we can have for, and the scoffing at wickedness, that boldness that we can have. You know, even in our own hymnal with hymn 666, the ooh, scary hymn. You know, it's the devil's number. The hymn's a little flock, fear not the foe. Just kind of twisting the knife in them a little bit. Or, you know, all the martyrs of, yeah, you got fire. Eh, so what? You know, I have eternal life waiting for me. You have an eternal fire waiting for you. So I think I'll be fine. So just this boldness and, you know, you can just scoff. You can look at the face of wickedness and just say, your end is coming. So, all right. Shall not all these take up their taunts, their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and we get five woes here, as long as I counted that right. One, two, three, four. Yeah, five. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. So your header here is saying it's to the Chaldeans, so the Babylonians here. It's probably who he's speaking of. It kind of seems like it, especially knowing their wickedness and all their ways that they've had those dragnets indiscriminately collecting all these people. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. So he studied note, makes a note for those pledges of possessions amassed by the greedy Babylonians do not belong to them and are viewed as heavy debts that cannot be repaid. Gregory, uh, to pile up earthly gains into a load of sin. So getting all these, basically, you know, IOUs, all these pledges, you pile them up and eventually you're going to pile up so much that, well, you can't really repay it anymore. So you're going to default on those. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. So again, you've done all this plundering and amassed all this debt and your debtors will arise, and then you will be the spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth 
to cities and all who dwell in them. So you've plundered them, but then the ones who you've plundered, well, they're going to eventually turn back and they'll show you. So even for the blood of man, so it brings back the images of Abel, his blood crying out for vengeance. Second, woe, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. How did that work with the Tower of Babel? Were they able to, one, reach God, or two, kind of escape his, his sight, and escape his oversight of what they were doing? We're told in Genesis 11 that, you know, they build the tower so high, Lord has to come down to them, kind of looks down at them, and is like, hmm, that's a, that's a cute little tower you built there. And you may have used all your wealth to build that. Oh, that's funny. We'll see how, see how well that does, how that does for you. So they've set their nest on high. You've seen that all throughout the Minor Prophets of them trusting in their own, their own works, their own military or the like to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. So they themselves are the ones who have devised shame for their own house. They are the authors of that shame. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts? So again, the Lord of armies here. So they have their military might. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies? That peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. So again, all that they've been doing to get out of the reaches of harm to set their nests on high. They've labored merely for fire. It's going to, fire's going to destroy it all. You know, you can build all these towers, build all these fortifications, but it will all be burned down to nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. So we saw that back in Nahum, that same type of shame and mockery, that same drunkenness and the nakedness that begins that shame. The cup in the Lord's right hand So the right hand being the hand of might will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. So again, remember in like Philippians, they glory in their shame. So here the enemies of the cross of Christ, they glory in their shame. So utter shame will come upon your glory. So that which you glory in will bring shame to you. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. So again, the Lord is not one of silence who's sitting there and remaining silent, as we saw in one thirteen. Unlike these idols here that are speechless, cannot speak, they are useless. And then we'll finish up the last woe here real quick. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, Let all the earth keep silence before him. All right, so any questions? We're almost out of time here. Don't want to take too much time, but. 
in final reflections. Next week, we're still meeting next week and then off for the, the 28th and the 4th. But so next week, we'll circle back around to Habakkuk, finish up chapter 3 here. We're starting to chapter 3 and finish it and then move on and we can answer any questions that you do have unless there's anything pressing real quick. What's the next? Uh... Uh, next book, we're going to be moving into uh, Zephaniah. Yeah. Good question. It's interesting to me that God chose Abraham among the Chaldeans to be the father of many nations. You know, he says mm-hmm. his father Terah came from the land of Ur, the Chaldeans. Mm-hmm. So Abraham was like sort of a pagan then, right? Or he wasn't. Really yeah, we to God before he was picked from mm-hmm. them out of, yeah. of all the mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. The Lord be with you. Lord, yes.